Say bye bye to Angela, Emily. Bye bye, Emily. Can I get a kiss? Angela has been a friend of mine for about eight years now. We met through mutual friends. She's a solicitor, owns her own home, and for as long as I've known her, she has wanted to have her own children. Her maternal instinct grew stronger with time, especially when many of our friends started to have families of their own. But, as a single woman, she had to look at an alternative route to becoming a mother. Well, I guess it's the age thing. It wasn't particularly that I was ready to have a child. I don't know if anyone ever is really ready to have a child. But I was coming up to my 38th birthday and I thought, right, okay, uh, I haven't met anyone. Um, I've been single for a couple of years. I really want children and I've always known that I've wanted children. Angela is a sociable person and loves to hang around with her wide circle of friends. She is warm unassuming and takes most things in her stride. I mean, there was two options. There was the freezing of my eggs and there was artificial insemination. So I went to the doctor and I did the blood tests and to see that everything was okay and they came back fine. So then he referred me on to my gynaecologist and I met him and I suppose my preference initially would have been, oh, I'll freeze my eggs. But both of them told me that's too little, too late, I'm afraid, not at 37. You really are diminishing your chances there. So I got a bit of a shock with that. Then I was like, OK, well, I, I, I think I have to make a decision now. Freezing eggs seems to be out for me at my age. Um, I could do it, but the, you're reducing your chances. But the best chance for me at my age is artificial insemination. Angela went to meet Dr Declan Keane, a senior embryologist at Repromed Clinic in Dublin. Dr Keane works with sperm, eggs and embryos to help women become pregnant. Among the services he offers is artificial insemination using donor sperm. Well, certainly for Repromed, we're in existence since 2009. So for us, we'll see a lot more single women coming through now, or same-sex couples, simply because we're relatively new in the Irish market. But certainly uh, sperm banks and donation of sperm and the utilisation of that has been available in Ireland for a long time. So we will see a new trend in couples coming through. But the biggest, bravest decision for anyone coming into this clinic is to walk through that door and to think, this is something I'm getting myself into. I, most people have been through the sleepless nights, the why me, the tears and the guilt, the finger pointing at themselves. And when they come through and have a chat with us, their ultimate objective is to have their own family, a live, healthy baby in nine months time. Angela discussed things further with Dr. Keane. I spoke to him for about an hour and when I left, I really felt like, God, anyone can do this. This is nothing. You know, it, it, he made it sound like it was such a no big deal that it, it, you're practically like going into the local shop and buying something. It actually seemed that easy and that non-controversial or not that big of a deal that I came out of the place going, God, I, you know what? I think I'll do that. That sounds grand. That's no big deal. And it took the pressure off in a way because then uh, there was no pressure to meet somebody or, you know, no pressure because of the children thing. With the decision made, Angela began the process of choosing a donor. Most of the donor sperm used in Ireland comes from Denmark. Cryos is the world's biggest sperm bank and they ship sperm to over 70 countries. So I just went on here and it, it is mad. I mean, 
it's a massive thing picking a donor. I could see the way you could become really obsessive about it. But I guess you just have to make a decision and go with it. Um, so here you go. You come into the website. On the Repromed website, there's a link to the Cryos database where you can browse through hundreds of donor profiles. I guess you've got to think about what your priorities are. And I do think you probably want to pick somebody who looks most similar to you, the Danish and the Irish. don't know if we have a huge amount in common, but you can do your best. Using a login, you can search by ethnicity, eye and hair colour, height and weight. Angela chose a donor who's similar in looks to her, tall and fair. Sperm banks do a full medical screen on each donor and the information on their profile is in-depth. Their background, education and family history is given in detail. In here, and then you go to the donor search. Some profiles even have results of emotional intelligence tests. Information is given on the donor's life, including what sports they play, jobs they have had and the countries they have visited. Some donors have photos of them when they were a baby and a message from them explaining their motive for donating. You can see there, you can see how many, his brother, he's got a brother, he's got a sister, his parents, his grandparents and what they all do for a living, what their interest, what this guy's interests are, you know, what he does in his spare time. I mean, he's a typical bloke um, and I just, uh, he's, he's into music, um, he likes dogs. I mean, he, he sounds like a guy that's into to um, being outdoors. He sounds pretty normal. He sounds well-travelled. He sounds like he has a nice life. He sounds like a well-rounded person on reading this, but sure, you never know, I guess. IUI is a type of artificial insemination where the sperm is directly placed into the uterus around the time the ovary is releasing an egg. They'll say with the IUI, which is interuterine insemination, it's only 15 to 17% chance that it'll work. So I suppose I didn't have a huge amount of hope for the first time, but I'll, I'll give it a go. Um, and it's a good way. I, my, my mind was good because I wasn't really focused on it. I was kind of relaxed about the whole thing. So I went and started taking the drugs that I had to take and they do various scans through your cycle to see that everything, your, your um, follicles are developing okay. Um, and I did that and then it came to the day that I was to get inseminated and you take a different injection the night before so that you ovulate. I went to work that morning, I did my morning's work, I went at lunchtime, headed off, um, went up to the clinic in uh, the Beacon, drove in, parked up, uh, went up into the clinic, said I have an appointment for half twelve, they said grand, in I went. From outside, the clinic looked like any normal office. Inside, I was surprised to find that the procedure room where the artificial insemination is carried out didn't look like a high-tech operating theatre. Instead, I found a room that resembled a typical GP surgery. The more relaxed the patient is for us, the easier it is for us to do the intrauterine insemination. And communication is really important at this stage because when you come in here for the big day, the IUI procedure... The more nervous you are, the more stressed and tense you are, the harder it is for us to do the procedure. So if we can talk to you, and if you want to use your earphones and put on some nice music or relaxation or a meditation tape, absolutely fine with us. Once people tell us in advance and once we make the offer, this is a very relaxed... Uh, it's, it's, it's 
trying to be non-clinical but don't forget it is a clinical procedure it is a very simple gynecology procedure but as simple as any woman who's been for a smear test will know just how easy that procedure is and he's there with his little tube so I'm like oh god and, and then I'm kind of starting to get a bit sweaty and my hands are getting clammy and they're like you're nervous I said well a bit now yeah this is it um, and she said no this is fine just relax there now it'll be over in two minutes of that the main magic is done in about 30 seconds afterwards you can lie down relax for 20 minutes and then to everybody's surprise you can head off back to your normal daily routine of work or going home to the house or off to do whatever you're doing there's no reason why somebody needs to find this as uh, an invasion or a hindrance in their normal life 10 minutes later after coming into that clinic I was back in the car and went back to work and I just remember sitting there going oh my god nobody has a clue what I've just done in my lunchtime and I just felt totally relaxed I just continued my day and I just didn't really even think about it Dr Keane finds that on average his patients have to get IUI twice before they become pregnant it cost Angela €2,800 for the tests and procedure They told me in two weeks later to do a test and see if it would have worked. So I just put it aside. But then about a week afterwards, I just didn't feel myself. I was like, I just don't feel right. There's something different. Um, I don't know what it was, but my body just didn't feel the same as it normally would. So I arranged to go to a friend's house to do the test one evening after work. And I went over, she has uh, two kids and she put them to bed and her husband didn't know anything about this. And I just said, OK, um, I'll just go upstairs to use your bathroom and uh, give her a wink. And uh, then she came up after me and I came out and the pregnancy test was there and it was positive. And I was a bit like, oh, I'm, I'm pregnant. And she was screaming and jumping around the place quietly, obviously, because no one should want her husband here. But I remember going, oh, my God, I'm pregnant. And it took a, it just didn't seem real. Angela told me some months before that she was thinking of using a sperm donor to become pregnant. But I was surprised to find that she'd gone through with it and was now three months pregnant. With her bumps starting to show, it was now time to start telling her friends and family that she was expecting a baby. All my friends have been absolutely brilliant. Most of them, I mean, the ones that didn't know I was thinking about it, obviously, were pretty shocked. Um, it's like, you know, I've, I was out, we'll say, and w- one night for dinner with them and I wasn't drinking and, like, they were saying, oh, why aren't you drinking? You're pregnant or something. And I just went, yeah. And <laughs> obviously um, that was one way to tell people, I guess. Uh, they didn't believe me. They were like, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And I said, no, 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 seriously, I am. But uh, so those people are particularly shocked. Since college, we've known Angela, and she's always wanted a family of her own. So it would have been, it would be a foolish thing for her not to do. Um, and we see her with like both Emer and I have kids, and we see her with our kids, and like she's a huge, huge part of our kids' lives. Um, and just myself, and my partner, ages ago when Angela decided to do this. Now I don't know whether I do it personally because I don't think I'd be brave enough, but I think it's amazing, and she's amazing for doing it. And we were chatting ages ago, just as you were doing it, I think, or when I was allowed to tell that you were pregnant or whatever it was, and you know we were having dinner, and he just goes. Oh, you know, we're really going to be a huge part of this kid's life, aren't we? And I was like, well, yeah, like she's a huge part of Emily's life, our little girl. And Emily talks about her all the time. So like she's got such support. And then I suppose the bigger 
the bigger people to tell, I suppose, and the people that I'd be more concerned about would be my family, especially my father. My mother has passed away for a few years, so my father was the biggest thing. You've done nothing. Oh, nothing. <laughs> nothing. So it's the exact same as I left it, except you took all the stuff out of the hall. Ah, uh, stuff is gone. And that's it. Angela is one of two children. Her father lives in rural Tipperary in the same house that she grew up in. Going on, well, he's 78, he's nearly, you know, he nearly hitting 80. And I was going, oh, right, how's he going to take it? Now he's great. He's, he's you know, he's quite an easygoing man. He's just an ordinary country man. I mean, he's quite religious. He'd go to mass every single weekend without fail. But I just, I know him and my parents couldn't have children. So they went down the road of adoption. Because, as I, you know, I'm adopted, even though it was back in the 1970s when they got me. And I think that probably has put him in a position that I knew he'd be a lot more accepting or a lot more open to the fact that this was something I was going to do. Well, this is probably the last time I'll be down, so I don't know. Is there even stuff taken out of the back bedroom? Huh? Is the stuff even the stuff taken? No, no, no. No? Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. No, none of that stuff, no. Clothes and all that stuff went out. So I didn't really tell him I was going to do it because I figured he'd be the type that could be ringing me every day then going, are you you doing that thing? Are you you think you're going to do that? So I was like, oh God, no, I can't take that on. So I just, he was on on the phone to me one day and I, we were talking about people having children or not having children and that. So I said, right, here's my opportunity. Not to really tell him, but just to suss him out. So um, I was wondering, would he even get the concept? I was like, does he, well, if I, if I say I'm going to do like um, get IUI, he's going to be like, what the hell is that? So I was talking to him anyway, um, very casually on the phone. And I just said, um, he was talking about people that he knew who was trying to have children. And I said, all oh, right. I said, God, I wonder how that'll work out. Um, they were trying IVF. And um, I said, you know, I might see how they get on. And I said, that's something I might try. I said, you know, like the AI man and being from the country, he would know what the AI man is. Um, and so when I compared it, I suppose, to the old farming business, I guess he probably put it in perspective and he probably understood immediately what I meant. But at the same time, I was like, does he get it though? Because I, I said it so quickly and so, you know, it was in conversation on the phone. I said, um, so I might try that, you know, you, you know, you can do, you can do, you can have in the AI man like you can. And he said, yeah, right, okay. And then he goes, sure, why wouldn't you? Sure, what? You know, I said, well, like daddy, I'm getting older and I haven't really met anyone. I said, and he said, well, I think that'd be a good thing to do. Sure, why wouldn't you? And I just went, okay, this is all going very well. Um, and I just didn't go on about it then. I left and I said, yeah, it's just something I think about. And at the time, I don't think he was feeling great. And he was saying something like, oh, you know, oh, I'll be long gone before there's any grandchildren and all that. And I was like, well, you'd never know. I said, just, you never know what's around the corner. Um, so don't be giving up just yet. And I left it at that. And then that was it. Um, and I just knew from that conversation that he was, he would be fine. He'd be grand and he'd be delighted. I can't remember what I said to her, but it wasn't, it wasn't bad anyway. I'd be surprised with her. Um, yeah, with her. I was delighted for her, actually. I said, uh, have something to work for. Yes. Uh, either working big on a stray, like you have to share it out with another someone else. Anyway, it's it's good anyway, I think, you know. It's just something to be looking forward to.
when you were growing up when you were growing up and doing all the things that you done when you were small you know this, this is fascinating as they call it yeah. same as she went dancing I always picked her up at all hours of the morning until three o'clock half three till the morning she came in and said Daddy I crashed the car Huh? <laughs> up in the hills and I had to get up organise the fellow to bring the cow home at three o'clock in the morning anyway I always stood by her matter what she wanted or what yeah. well this is the last time he'll see me alone probably because I'm probably not going to come home now again between now and having the baby so I'd say yeah this will be the last time I'll be pulling up outside on my own until a little baby will be coming in with me. So, we're all looking forward to that coming up. Yes. I, I don't know, I might have to hire a helicopter to get to Dublin when I hear the news. <laughs> between 110 and about 160 beats per minute. So it's much faster than your heart rate or mine. And when they're earlier, they're even sometimes a little faster. So that's perfectly normal. It's Angela's 20-week scan. Thankfully, things have gone smoothly so far, and she's enjoying pregnancy. The baby's lying with its back on your right-hand side. And size-wise... It's a little bigger than average, yeah. So that's a good sign. I mean, the baby's growing well. Um, the fluid around the baby is perfect. Okay. That's umbilical cord there. These are little toes up here you're seeing. See them yeah. moving. That's the placenta, which looks nice and healthy. So you be careful up here. I'll give it away in terms of what you're having. Oh, do you yeah. know what it is? No, I don't know. Okay, so surprise. Oh, you know now, do you? I, I deny all knowledge. <laughs> With all of Angela's family living in Tipperary, her friends are her main support network in Dublin. It's seven weeks before the due date and we are meeting to arrange a rota so someone is on standby for when she goes into labour. Well, this is what we wanted to talk about. So you can't do those two weeks, so that's cool. Yeah. Like, you know, obviously if you're here and whatever, yeah. so we need to be free. Yes, well, well, I have to talk to work, obviously. I've got the week prior to your birth, Angela, I'm kind of busy and I have a meeting on the 20th I have to go to. So, um, but apart from that, like work is great and it's flexible and I can obviously just give them some notice. And I'm sure they'll be fine. I'm sure they'll be understanding. So, I, yeah, I think we need to be free from the 1st of June. And I'm, when we say free, I mean, I'm not going to be moving in and sleeping <laughs> in your bed. I mean, just like that we don't have any other plans to do so. Yeah, and there is other people um, like that have kind of the the drive, the plan B drive, people yeah. like um, that have volunteered as well. Um, but a lot of them will probably be back in work. And obviously, Laura has a new baby and stuff. So um, I don't I mean, I, th- I think there's plenty of backup support, but probably because one of you here today are probably one of the ones that I probably want in with me. 
Um, yeah, that's so <laughs> looking forward to this. <laughs> no, I am. I'm so excited. I, I had actually investigated adoption as well before I even started any of this. I had gone just to look into adoption and I'd gone to one of the meetings about it. And it just seemed like a long, hard road, especially for someone who is single, because certain countries don't allow single people to adopt. This way seemed easier than adoption. Um, and also, I suppose, a big thing for me um, was to have my own child, not for... You know, I mean, absolutely, I would totally have adopted. But the fact of the matter is, I myself am adopted. um, And I think that um, has always probably left me wanting to have my own flesh and blood. And no disrespect, God, to my family. Absolutely not. I couldn't have been, I suppose, adopted by a better family. But it's just something that I think maybe, well, for me, I don't know if it's the same for every adopted person. But I think for me, it is something that... It's it's something that, well, for me, all my life I've thought, oh, I wonder what it'd be like to look like somebody or to actually have someone in your life that maybe resembles you or has characteristics like you or things like that. Um, as I say, it was never a problem when we were kids and I never remember being told I was adopted. It was my parents handled it absolutely textbook Um they were just absolutely brilliant. They never sat us down one day. It wasn't a case of, you know, you see in the movies like where they find a letter and you discover you're adopted. It wasn't like that. It, it just was, that's just the way we were brought up, I guess. They must have been telling us from the moment they, the moments they picked us up from the, uh, the foster home. But I guess it's, it is another element to wanting children. I do think definitely for me, it's something I've always known. There are no definitive statistics on the use of artificial insemination in Ireland and the legislation is a grey area. The report of the Commission on Assisted Human Reproduction was published in 2005, but so far the government hasn't implemented any of its recommendations. One of the important questions that clients will ask when they come here to talk about using donor sperm is how many times can this sperm be used in Ireland? And there is no regulation in Ireland at the moment that says on a basis of a genetic population study, how many times can one donor be used before we're afraid of this sanguinous relationship in the future where a half-brother meets a half-sister. What we have done in Ireland is between the units that utilise donor sperm, we have agreed internally between the IVF units that we can have up to three families from one donor. What that means is that if Cork is using sperm, if Dublin is using sperm and Galway, that as pregnancies are achieved from a particular individual, that once we get to three pregnancies, that sperm donor cannot be used again. That's an important consideration for couples. If somebody achieves a pregnancy with donor codename X and they want to achieve a pregnancy again in in the future, they can do that even though we've met the three um, pregnancy criteria, it's three families we can create. Because obviously often people want to have the same paternal genome involved, the same father, biological father of the child. But there is no legislation governing what we're doing. In some countries, including the UK, it's illegal to use anonymous donors. That legislation is in place to give children the right to identify their donor. In Ireland, it's permitted to use both anonymous and non-anonymous donors. An anonymous donor's identity is kept secret forever, while the identity of a non-anonymous donor can be disclosed to offspring when they reach 18 years of age. I made the decision that I would pick for anonymous. Um, 
you know, I hope I hope that's the right thing to do. I just I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm not 100 percent sure of my reasons, but I guess it's just that in the future, it's it's a clear answer. And I hope I've done the right thing for um, my child. And I just thought it it just makes it simpler. And if you wanted non-anonymous, you were really, really limited in the list of people you could pick. It's something, I suppose, that will play in my mind over the next few years and later on. And yeah, absolutely. If my child turns around and wants to know um, about their father, that's that's a difficult one. And if I've made the wrong decision, that's something I'll have to live with then. I guess it that comes back to me as well being adopted. I can somewhat empathise with a child that might want to know who their father is, obviously, since I don't know who my birth parents were. Angela plans to use the same open and honest approach as her parents did when telling her child about where they came from. Oh, I would definitely be an advocate of that. Absolutely. You know, there will be no story. I mean, I'm I'm quite open about it amongst my family and everything else. So, I mean, there's no way I would be trying to tell a child, you know, that it was some sailor. You know, it's part of making this decision. You have to be willing to tell your child the truth and explain to them the motivation for you doing this and, um, you know, giving them as much information as you possibly possibly can so I would hope I mean god I, I would hope I'd take inspiration from my own parents and the way they handled telling us we were adopted and if I'm half as successful as, as they were um with us uh, I'd be thrilled and and I think then my child would be a happy little little child so yeah definitely open and and honest <laughs> For Angela, and I think the fact that there's so many people here is a very much a testament. It's four weeks before the due date, and all our friends got together to throw Angela a baby shower. We're so proud of you, and you can do like no, it's like we're all in this family together, and look at it's going to be such a great adventure. And it takes a village to raise a family. Well, I don't know if I would have made the decision to do it without having all the people around me that are here today and people that aren't. And now, like the rest of you, I'll get emotional. And I, I mean, I've absolutely no fears. But I think a lot of the reason is that I'm not afraid and I'm very confident doing this and very happy to be doing it is because I know I have so much support and so many brilliant people in this room and outside this room. So thanks a million to everybody. Angela relies on our friends with children for parenting advice as her own mother passed away 13 years ago. Shortly after her mother's death, she contacted her adoption social worker for information about her birth parents. My birth mother was 26 when she had me and that was the year that I, when I was 26, I had actually looked up to see could I find information. So she was 26, um, she was from the country, she was married actually and she had an affair with a local farmer and she got pregnant with me and moved back home to her mother and stayed with her until she had me and gave me up for adoption. And then I think after that, from what the social worker in the Adoption Society said, was that she got back with her husband and they never spoke about me again or never spoke about what had happened. So, as I say, she was only 26. Who knows? She might have had more children. I don't know. Uh, The social worker said that she was very private about it, very concerned that I would show up on her doorstep at any point in time. And yeah, that was that was the, the story, I guess, where I came from. And it um, was funny, like, to think that, 
that was whatever many years ago and she was 26 and she had no choice but to give me up and here I am now however many years later deciding to have a child on my own consciously going out there to actually do it so it's it's I just think it's kind of ironic that I've come it's come full circle basically yeah that she gave up a child because she was a single well not a single mother but because she was a separated woman I guess at the time and here's me now choosing to do this so I just think it's it's just a sign of how much Ireland has changed I guess in in 38 years it's good, I think. I think it's Ireland has changed a lot and it's a bit a lot more progressive. And I mean, I would, I, I definitely think I'd still like to meet the lady, but at this point in time, I, I don't I, I don't think it's going to happen. And, and who knows what has happened to her since, or my father, I mean, natural father, who knows. And if you met her, what would you say to her, do you think? God, I'd probably just say thanks. I would say thanks because I think that... I had amazing parents and I wouldn't want my life to have been any other way. I would want it to have been with the family that I was brought into. So, yeah, I I would only have thanks to her and and hear more about her. But I wouldn't really expect anything from her. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't think um, she owed me anything or, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't even know if I'd want a relationship. It's a really odd one. I don't know. You have a bath, you have um, blankets, or sorry, towels. It's three weeks before the due date, and Angela is shopping with her birthing partner, Linda. Those swaddling blankets. Oh no, I, I, actually have I don't have them. I think I might get them. So yeah, this probably is my last big shop. Ah. <laughs> you see, it was kind of exciting up to now, now it's getting a bit nerve-wracking yeah this makes it very real obviously that you're actually going oh my god this is the last shop before I'm at home with the baby going here's bottles what the hell do I do with this brush thing or whatever so yeah the preparations continue at home as Angela gets the house ready for its new resident and she prepares herself to go to hospital yeah my dreaded hospital bag what's in your hospital bag scary stuff <laughs> like yeah horrible stuff there really is no glamour to pregnancy like yeah breast pads and then there's my flip-flops for the shower. So literally everyone is, people have given me everything. There's a fan for when you're in labour so you can fan yourself. What else have I got in here? Oh yeah, some water spray for my face. Um, yeah, there's like, I literally have everything and people say you don't use half the stuff you take in with me. But anyway, it's all a distraction so I guess I will take it with me. The day before the due date, I went with Angela and a few friends to see a play. The idea was to keep her distracted while she waited to go into hospital. None of us expected that she would actually go into labour that day. They say on your first pregnancy, you usually go over by around two weeks. During the show, she started to get contractions. But Angela calmly waited and watched the end of the performance while our friend Emer timed the contractions. As we made our way out of the theatre, in a room full of people, Angela's waters broke. It was the most low-key labour scene imaginable and I doubt anyone else except for our friends knew what was going on. With a cool head, Angela made her way to the car and went straight to hospital. Are you recording? I am indeed. I can see your baby's head. Scrunching its eyes. Does my bright lights. One more pain, please. <laughs> well done, honey, you're doing great. 
After 10 hours in hospital, Angela's contractions got stronger and she began to push. Big, huge breath for me. Linda was with her throughout. Just breathe. Okay. Just open your eyes. Breathe. Open your eyes. Open your eyes. Open your eyes. <laughs> so I'm just a little boy. Hold up. Congratulations. Thank A healthy baby boy, Aethon Joseph, was born on the 17th of June at 7.06am. He weighed 7 pounds and 12 ounces. First of all, to see that he was perfect and that he was fine. I mean, there was a little bit of complication when he was born, but it was dealt with pretty swiftly. So um, he was grand. But uh, then after that, I guess it, it, it's so natural in a way. You just kind of, um, he's there as if he was always there in a way. Um, and I just couldn't believe how absolutely perfect he was. And he was my little man and yeah you just just love him and I guess even from the very beginning while you love them obviously I, I did from the beginning but it grows more and more as they kind of grow as well When Aidan was a few weeks old Angela took him to see her family in Tipperary Angela's dad got to meet his only grandchild and Aidan got to meet his only grandparent Like every mother, Angela has her good days and bad days, but overall she's adjusting well to motherhood. There have been a couple of times, I suppose, when I was pure, purely and utterly exhausted, um, where I guess the, I don't know, the hormones get to you or you kind of go, I guess I was so overwhelmed, I guess, by how much I adored him from the very beginning. Um, I felt guilty and I, I think I, someone said recently, what's the biggest change about being a parent? Or you're, and it's the guilt that you feel. I understand that now. I'd never have got that before. Um, but yeah, you feel guilty about everything. You feel guilty about, have I had him out of the house too long? Is he tired? Have I not fed him enough? Is he not feeling happy? Is the guilt and I and the biggest and most overwhelming guilt for me was, God, this perfect little creatures in the world whom I absolutely adore, and 
I feel guilty that I brought him into the world without a father. Um, so that that's that's pretty much that was a low point, obviously, because I was I was really upset. I was looking at him going, he's so perfect and so sweet and so innocent and he deserves everything in the world. Um, that's something that I'll probably always feel. I mean, that's something that still pops into my head and I just go, God, he doesn't have a father and, and that's a big thing. Um, but I just kind of go, then there's more of an onus on me and to make sure that he misses out on nothing and that he gets all the support and love and, I guess, activity that he needs from me and from the rest of the people in my life. So um, that's the only way I can reconcile it. I mean, there's no there's no quick and easy and perfect answer to... I can't give him a father, like, I just can't replace that for him, but I can just hopefully do my best and fill the void as much as possible for him. Oh! <laughs> Uh-oh! Aidan is thriving and is the apple of his granddad's eye. Angela feels sad that her mother is not around to see him grow up. She plans to go back to work early next year and is trying to decide if she's going to put Aidan in a creche or get him an au pair. This child to me is special and it was chosen. It wasn't, you know, it's was a big decision for me to do this on my own and it's not something that has happened lightly. It's something that I have chosen to do and I hope I can, I suppose, instill the same mentality and, and confidence that my parents gave me about where I came from in this child. Mm-hmm. Any more surprises? Love you. I, I would hate to live my life without having done this, without a doubt. Yeah. He's definitely my, what does people say, my best work yet. <laughs> definitely. Definitely.